We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I often tell the story about how I, I remember this maybe perverse attraction I had while we were, you know, eight kids uh, in the station wagon, driving on the New Jersey Turnpike, looking at the refineries, and I loved it. I loved them. I just was fascinated by that landscape. You know, I went to undergrad in Pittsburgh, which I love that city, love it. And it actually used to still smell of the steel mills. I'd come down and, you know, out of my apartment and go, whoo, okay, I'm in Pittsburgh. That was Julie Bargman talking about the sights and even smells that have inspired her work. Bargman is a landscape architect and clearly not your typical one. She's famous for taking old and industrial sites, toxic waste dumps, and abandoned coal mines and transforming them into corporate headquarters, community art centers, and commercial spaces. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. If you visit a site that's been designed by Julie Bargman, you might see lots of trees and beautiful gardens, as well as old bricks, parts of defunct buildings, and rusty railroad tracks. Bardman believes in preserving the history of a place, using it in her design, and when possible, doing it with a touch of humor. Her company, for instance, is called D-I-R-T, DIRT, which stands for Dump It Right There. For her innovative work, Julie was recently named the first recipient of the prestigious Oberlander Prize 
created to bring greater recognition to landscape architecture. Listen and learn why Julie Bargman is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm speaking today with Julie Bargman, who is one of the top landscape architects whose work truly makes a difference. Julie, welcome. Thank you. You've been called the Toxic Avenger, the Queen of Slag. What do these names mean? And what do they say about you and your work? Well, it's funny. I, I mean, I, I take it as people liking superheroes. Her- mm-hmm. um, you know, so in this case, I think the writers, you know, you know, used a pretty sexy name, you know, to draw attention to my efforts, um, you know, to address toxicity um, and degradation. Sometimes the sites don't have to be, you know, super bad. Um, I've dealt with kind of every level um, of degradation. Um, but I think that the, I have to say, sometimes, you know, when the press would kind of tag me or label me, I would be resistant. But in this case, you know, what the heck? I'll strap on a cape or a crown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Uh, and it, But mostly it's it's important since... You know, the attention to in post-industrial sites was really not very robust. Um, so I was happy for um, maybe those names being a way in for folks to be curious, you know, about uh, the work. I think that's really important. If it calls attention to the kind of important work you're doing, it's a great process. Yeah. So. You do reclaim um, toxic waste sites, uh, heavily polluted areas, old industrial sites, and you turn them into usable spaces for the community. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. What are you trying to achieve? Well, you know, I want to make one point here um, about uh, the reuse of these industrial sites. And to say that um, in the three decades that I've been working on them, early on, the environmental engineers, well, into this date also, were the primary actors, you know, in so-called what they would call it cleaning up. I'm doing little Mm -hmm. quote, air quotes there, Mm -hmm. uh, polluted sites. And I just had to intervene. I would actually sometimes be very angry (laughs) at their approaches which were mostly quick fixes, you know, they, you know, hog and haul is the, you know, what they call it, which means they just excavate all the polluted soils and haul them away to, you know, somebody else who has to deal with it, um, somebody else's backyard, um, and cap and cover, you know, which is importing, right, a bunch of soil from who knows where over um, uh, all of the contaminants. And I just felt like, wait a second, you know, you're erasing some really important layers, you know, of, um, of history. You know, there's a lot of sweat <laughs> from labor in that soil. Um, and I, I just wanted to, um, make friends <laughs> with the environmental engineers and say, let's have another set of criteria for the decision making here. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. And uh, mostly with the with the aim that those sites were still connected to the community. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's all it's uh, their memory is embedded, you know, um, uh, in these sites. So 
I always felt like it was, <laughs> I used to say when I got really mad that it was a form of robbery um, that uh, was being done. So I knew we could do uh, a lot better. And you actually take these toxic waste sites and do it in a way that you just described and transform it for the community. Yeah. Yes. It's, you know, there's also, you know, what I kind of battled was that um, the community also would have this kind of perception of these sites. They were one big toxic blob. Mm -hmm. And when you do your homework and really look at, you know, the flows, the, you know, the materials, the byproduct, they aren't one big toxic blob. And um, I found it was became super interesting to to think about what I would call curating the site. You know, like what's hot is hot, and that needs to be, you know, definitely dealt in some ways. But there are places that are not hot, meaning you know, toxic, mm-hmm. and could aren't those a way for the community to get past the chain link fence? You know, and say this this still belongs to us. It's being treated in a good way over there where it's hot, but we have a way in. We can still be invested. And do you consult with the community before you begin projects like this? Oh, boy. Yes. Well, because, I mean, their stories, their stories create the baseline. When I would do diagrams with my students, one would be about the industrial flows, right? But the other diagram was constructing the narrative of the social and cultural value of the project. So there were two things with the communities. One was to actually educate them about what the you know level of toxicity is. And to just be very honest with them, that was kind of radical <laughs> to like the EPA, you know, to be like, you know, I was like, no wool over their eyes. They're smart, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So one was to kind of really be real about the condition of the site. The second was, you know, again, their, their stories, because those, those stories of how they would relate about what the site had meant to them, right? I mean, it was mm-hmm. their livelihood. I mean, the workers' housing was right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And suddenly the site, chain link fence goes up, and suddenly the site is an orphan. So I, I w- would work with the community to, you know, tease out how it is that they might restore their relationship with the site again. And are they skeptical about the possibility of transformation, if you will, of the site? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. And that's what's so important about, um, you know, the technical part of it, you know, to um, have them and, and this time, you know, this time with the EPA and with, you know, local um, uh, like departments of environmental quality and the environmental engineers to be very clear about, like I said, that condition of the site, you know, uh, and how it is that they could enter into it. But it, it took, <laughs> that was hard work. Um, I bet. I yeah. bet. Well, your design studio, as I understand, is called D-I-R-T. And as best as I know, that spells dirt. Why did you choose that name? I, well, <laughs> I have I, I have a thing about four-letter words, unfortunately, uh-huh. uh, and acronyms. I love puns, you know. And I don't know. I also didn't want to name the firm after myself, like a lot are, 
mm-hmm. uh, because the work is bigger than me, you know, and uh, for whatever reason, dirt came to mind because um, I like dirt. And uh, yeah, so it so it's carried me through um, and it's people remember that. <laughs> like that they remember I I mean I don't want to name drop here but I will say that I worked on a project with Brad Pitt and he like when he first met (laughs) he came up to me he goes I love dirt like okay you're gonna get it if the firm if the firm was named after me I don't know if he would say I love Julie you know so anyway um, well it's certainly evocative (laughs) it's fun (laughs) <laughs> well, what's what's already clear in this conversation is you have a marvelous sense of humor and uh, your fresh thinking goes into these projects. You actually have used industrial waste as, as part of your designs. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works? Yeah. First of all, I have to say, I think the humor has been um, very helpful in dealing with such serious stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, 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 I was careful with it, not to kind of diminish the severity of things. Um, but the other thing was, you know, the other thing, you know, that humor does is it, um, it lets you just kind of enter into, um, you know, conversations with people and yeah, it's just worked that way. And about the kind of reuse, well, I feel like, right, that waste when you look at it in a certain way, you know, is full of the memory of the place. Um, and, you know, if it were all swept, you know, like the old Hagen Hall swept away, I've always worried about erasure. But what I like to do, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about my project, you know, at, at Urban Outfitters, the Philly Navy Yard, and uh, one in Dallas where I experimented with, you know, what became known as Barney Rubble, was to look at the idea of, of transforming that material in such a way that you could read both the history of it, but also kind of the future of it. I mean, the folks at Urban, you know, I've got, I got some of my most cherish compliments from them. One being that there was evidence that maybe what I was trying to do worked. He just said, I feel like this site has always been here. This landscape has always been here, but there's something that points to the future that I'm part of. Oh, wow. (laughs) I was like, bang. (laughs) Yeah. You did exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah. So you're the first ever recipient of a new prize, the Cornelia Hahn Oberlander International Landscape Architecture Prize. Yeah. It's a mouthful, but it's a very, very (laughs) prestigious prize. Yeah. What did getting that prize mean to you? Well, I was pretty blown away. What it meant to me, I mean, I feel like, and I said this to the chair of the committee when she called, I just said, I am so glad that the work is being recognized Mm. and the way of working is recognized Um, because I've, I mean, you know, I always called, you know, dirt studio, like a nonprofit just as a joke, but it was truly nonprofit, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was so invested in, in it being a critical design practice versus a commercial one. 
where it really had a mission. So I think from what I am getting reactions to, is that the gratitude, thankfulness from my being, um, I guess, a, a pioneer? Um, and, and actually that is why, um, it's named, you know, after Cornelia, who was just, oof, wow, a powerhouse. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's it. I'm just appreciate the attention to the work and the attention to way of working. Well, and it's clearly wonderful recognition of what you've done and what you're trying to do and why it's so important to our communities. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Let's talk a little bit about how hard this is. <laughs> what what was the most challenging site you've worked on? I guess I'm curious, are there sites that are just too polluted or ugly to be reclaimed? I mean, do you just not are you not able to do certain things? Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say I never consider a landscape ugly. <laughs> uh and I mean if you mean ugly in terms of its, you know, if of its unrehabitable. Ah, okay. Well, certainly I, you know, I, I worked with the EPA on, on Superfund sites. And as ah. you know, those are the biggest and baddest. Yep. Um, the ones, uh, especially on the national priority list. I mean, bad. And, um, oh gosh. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I have to say I, um, I worked with the uh, on these sites for a while, and then after a while, I just had too many bruises from banging my head. You know, the laws, the legislation, all, you know, all of those constraints. Constraints just were so difficult. So, you know, I mean, and I could actually say that those those constraints, you know, of that of that 
incredible process that you have to go through legally is one thing that makes it impossible. And the other thing is the, you know, how incredibly difficult the toxicity is. But I have to say, I do think that there could be a larger repertoire of ways of approaching those sites. I was trying to kind of suggest those to the EPA and, you know, like some owners of this property. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, so my, you know, suggestions of like, well, why don't we leave this whole entire area alone? Make sure it's not leaching off to the side. But in fact, microorganisms, you know, actually take care of the toxicity, but they take a long time. That is the thing that really gets me is time and everyone's impatience. Yeah. And probably the skepticism is still there. Is this ever going to get finished? And are they really going to do what they said they're going to do? Sure. Absolutely. And then what's it like when the community gets to see this extraordinary change? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, uh, you know, similar to what I was like, saying earlier you just watch them you know give it a big hug again uh-huh. you know i mean I, when i worked on the it's the vittendale project old coal mine in southwestern pennsylvania and um you know all the generations right of the workers were living right there you know so when it became the park um with this passive treatment system incorporated within it there's stories of grandfathers just talking about working on that site because they were taking a walk and they were seeing they were seeing both the legacy of pollution but they were seeing the future of regeneration mm-hmm. and that they that they are part of that it's a beautiful thought it really is gives you goosebumps yeah it does let's go back to your childhood for a moment What was your growing up like? Did you think you'd ever become a landscape architect? And what was that moment when you knew exactly what you wanted to do? Mm. Well, I grew up uh, in a very typical post-war neighborhood uh, outside New York City, and it was absolutely wonderful. And I often tell the story about how I, I remember this maybe perverse attraction I had while we were eight kids uh, in the station wagon Uh. driving on the New York, you know, the Jersey Turnpike, looking at the refineries. And I loved it. I loved them. I just was fascinated by that landscape. But, you know, I think that just kind of like I absorbed that. And then it really kind of wasn't present. Um, Although, you know, I went to undergrad. in Pittsburgh, um, mm-hmm. which I love that city, um, love it. And uh, it actually used to still smell of the steel mills. I'd come down and, you know, out of my apartment and go, whoo, okay, I'm in Pittsburgh. And uh, But it's but a it great was- transformative place. I mean, when you think of oh, what they were able to do there. Right? Incredible. Amazing. But I have, I do have to say, I always remember that I met the mayor, Tom Burphy, mm-hmm. uh, and I just was like, <laughs> we had a conversation about how he took away too much slag 
you know, it was almost <laughs> right. It was almost cleaned up a little too much, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, so, you know, ah, you know, but, uh, but it was, uh, after, after undergrad, I, at art school, I, I always talk about how I was in my black hole period and, uh, just really didn't know what to do until I, I suddenly somebody said landscape architecture. I said, what, what is that? You know? Mm -hmm. And I found that it's the perfect combination of, you know, of, of art, of science, you know, of, of being engaging the public, you know? So I just was like, boom, that's it. I'm there. I am. Wonderful. So you're, I think the first woman working in the contaminated United States, as we say. <laughs> Did you face any special challenges because you were a woman doing this? And why do you think it's important to have a, a woman's perspective in this field? Hmm. Well, yes, it was certainly um, completely male-dominated. Um, and... You know, but I have brothers, so that doesn't bother me. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes don't make a big deal of it um, so that it's kind of more comfortable. But, you know, I, I, it was the case that the engineers and folks were skeptical. And when I just kind of, in a way, quietly, I don't do things quietly, but like just assertively but just um respectfully the important thing here was to show that you knew what they were dealing with i mean i dealt with a head of environmental operations at ford and he basically said you know hey i've got the epa has a gun to my head you know and i just was like yikes you know so that's where you know i had to do my homework and understand the legislation and then an environmental engineer was saying, blah, 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 and the Coke works. And they, I go, okay, Coke works. And I would get this completely uncomprehensible flow diagram about making Coke. But then I would spatialize it and they'd be like, oh, okay. So there was, I think in this case, and maybe, you know, if a guy was doing what I was doing, he'd had to do the same thing. But I think there's, there's that kind of other level of, of skepticism to move past. But I think there is, might be a level of, of, say, the community seeing another person, in this case, a woman, other than a bunch of white, you know, environmental engineers speaking with them you know mm -hmm. so i think it 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 for them it it you know for the community and, and for you know clients i work for i like to think that it broadened their perspectives um and that i i reached audiences in a certain way by being a woman well and half of these communities are populated by women so yep. uh, yeah you must have made them feel a tad more comfortable if you will well, I, I talked about their, you know, role in the work, mm -hmm. which is usually invisible. But no, man, they were, they were they were working hard, but it was just happened to be outside the coal mine. Well, so in addition to all the things that you've been doing that we've been talking about, you teach at the University of Virginia. Are students drawn to your courses? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the reaction. What surprises you about? 
about the students today? Well, this question makes me remember some of my earlier seminars. I've been at UVA for 25, 30 years or something. But in my early seminars, I would actually show them a lot of the photographs of artists like Richard Mizrak, you know, of industrialized, polluted sites that their whole, you know, the whole um, bevy of uh, David Hansen, Martin, you know, Pierre Goyne. And, you know, it was funny. Their reaction was, yeah, so that's our world. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'd say, you know, I'd be like, would you like to do something about it? Let's, you know, let's really research what's, you know, behind that photograph. And um, they loved it. I bet. And selfishly, I have to tell you, my teaching has absolutely supported, not financial, well, actually it is, um, my, you know, the work, you know, Mm -hmm. the students' research and curiosity was unbelievable. So every time I did a studio, I did, um, I, I picked a subject that I didn't know (laughs) very much about and, you know, a different one, say every year. So like I started with, of course, dump, um, uh, about landfills. And I think the students were very excited that I was learning with them, you know, that we were like, we were almost like an, you know, a design office, you know, that we would uh, just venture into these things. And they loved the places we would go, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, who doesn't love strapping on protective clothing, you know, so, uh, you know, steel making and robling, you know, just uh, we had really fantastic adventures, and they are the ones that the students are the ones that really helped develop this way of spatializing, um, you know, the con- the contaminants, um, and you know, combining that, like I was saying earlier, with the community history, um, and to wonder about how how would those two um, come together. Well, and I would imagine that. What you just described is empowering for the students because they actually get to do something that brings about change. You know, I I think so many students want to be part of that today uh, and you enable them to be. I like to think so, you know, because I'm just like, come on, you guys, you know, come on over here and get mad with me. But also let's get creative together Mm. with this stuff. And I'm I'm so I do have to say I'm so proud of, you know. So many of my students that, you know, are out there in the world and they're, they, they write me and they're working on these projects. I mean, this, you know, this work now is not marginal for our discipline. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty close to center. Um, and, you know, and my students are the ones that are, they're, they're, you know, happily equipped uh, to address them. And how rewarding is that? <laughs> it's so rewarding. Well, the clock is not our friend, uh, and it's winding down. And let me just ask you, as we conclude this wonderful conversation, um, these are challenging times. I don't think anybody would question that statement uh, at a time that everything is questioned. But what gives you hope? Mm. Well, you know, I mean, it's a very basic thing, but it's a profound thing to say that uh, it's amazing to me that people you know, and I say, when I say people, it's like from mayors, you know, to women on the street are aware of the environment and 
um, you know, they may not be acting upon this awareness, but I think slowly but surely they will. And um, my students will (laughs) help with that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. And really, more importantly, thank you for what you do. It's really been a pleasure to hear about it. And Julie Bargman, may you continue to do this for a long time. It's terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. What a great way to look at the world. It's so inspiring talking to Julie Bargman. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, when we create something new, we need to remember what came before. Just paving over the past is, as Julie says, a form of robbery. Second, any project gets better when it takes into account the opinions of people who live near it. Whenever she undertakes a design, Julie seeks input from the community. She asks them what they remember, what the site means to them. Finally, like Julie, we can take hope from the younger generation. Julie's students recognize that the world is full of problems, but they are ready to take on the challenge of fixing them. Tune in next time to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.